Hello and welcome to Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churfus. And today, a trip down memory lane for someone who wasn't even there. Человек заходит в магазин и спрашивает, у вас нет рыбы? Нет, у нас нет мяса. Рыбы нет в магазине напротив. Yep, a Soviet-era Russian joke. Someone walks into a store and asks, you don't happen to have fish here, do you? And they say, no, we don't have meat. The shop across the road doesn't have fish. And the comedian? My name is Anna Kharzeva, and I'm a writer about the Soviet times, and uh, I run a, a cooking school. Anna Karzieva spent much of her childhood in the United States, which is just as well because my Russian is non-existent. And it was through that cooking school, which she started when she went back to Moscow, that Anna came to write a series of articles that's now turned into a book. One of the expat mothers who brought their children to learn about Soviet food and culture suggested that Anna write about some of the recipes in the book of tasty and healthy food. Now, the book was first published in 1939, and for a long time, it was the only cookbook available in the Soviet Union. It contained everything you might need to know, not only what to cook and how to do it, but also how to set out a table, how to hold your fork, serve dishes, all the important details. And it was a fixture of Soviet life, if not exactly of the kitchen. Anna said, OK. But she also insisted that there had to be more to it than cooking her way through the book. She wanted to involve her granny. Unlike Anna, who was born in 1986, granny had lived through the Soviet era and had plenty of stories to tell about food and about life. Yes, it's funny because I was already very close to my grandmother and uh, I already heard a lot of her stories. And uh, whenever she told her stories, I was always listening. You know, I was actually interested in what she had to say. But this project made me ask her questions I'd never asked her before and made me write it down. And, and that's been really wonderful. And something she told me, I never even thought of it, you know, and I'm so glad I, I've done it you know, while she's still, you know, healthy enough to share. And uh, there's more actually still to write about her and other and people of her generation? Well, I think that oral history aspect of it is absolutely fascinating because of the contrast between what you write about what your grandmother says and, well, because I can only read the translation, but and what you write mm -hmm. about what the book of, of, of Tasty and Healthy Food says. Tell me about the book, because it, is it, did, did Russian people like your grandmother, did they use it as a cookbook? Well, uh, it's, it's a good question. So, yes, they did use it as a cookbook. And also they used it as uh, this reading material, viewing material, because the images portrayed in the book were so unrealistic that, uh, you know, I know people who grew up in Armenia, for example, who say, we just looked at it as some fancy magazine-type images, you know, like... Um, the way I might look at Vogue and think, oh, that's a nice haircut. You know, I'm never going to get it. Or the look, because it was so unrealistic. But the book is so big and it has so many different recipes that you could find recipes in it that you would actually use. And my grandmother did use a lot of the recipes too. But some of the recipes, like I would speak to her about it and she would say, what? 
you would never find that ingredient or I've never heard of this ever in my life. No one has ever made that. So it's amazing just how many recipes the book contains. And that there are recipes that I hated, but there were also recipes that I loved and that I actually have introduced into my life. <laughs> <laughs> okay, tell me, tell me the, 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 the one you love the most. Well, I really like that recipe with fried eggs. It's very simple, but the idea is you fry the onion first and then you cut up bread or like croutons. You just use croutons and you fry them. And on top of that, you put eggs and tomatoes and you cook it all together. And I just really like the croutons in the, in the fried eggs or the bean pate. You know, just you just crush up some beans. And I mean, I did add some of my own spices as well. But it's great, and I've served it at parties, and it was always well-received. So I was like, well, yeah, here you go. It's a Soviet recipe. I mean, for me, of course, I think the national drink of Russia is vodka. But um, you say the national drink of Russia is tea. Uh, uh, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I think they sort of exist in parallel uh, universes, really, tea and Tea and vodka. I mean, not everybody drinks vodka, obviously. There's lots of people who just don't touch it at all. But as for tea, yes, it's huge. It's, uh, you know, traditional samovars, you know, the tea urn, and the traditional Russian way of uh, having teas. You sit around the samovar, which has a lot of water in it, 10 liters maybe, 5, 10 liters. And you just keep adding, topping up your tea. And so it can take hours because everyone loves tea. I mean, it's just a, a thing. It's what you do when someone comes over. You just put on the kettle and you can sit there for hours. I remember as a kid that like, somebody would come over and we would spend hours drinking tea. Your grandmother had a tea mushroom? Yes. And I read that and I thought, kombucha. Right, yeah. Which now is incredibly groovy. Old Russians had had this kombucha going in their kitchens? Uh, yeah, absolutely. When I was a kid, we had a jar of this uh, mushroom tea kombucha on our windowsill, and it had this, it sort of looked like jellyfish, you know, at the top, and it had layers, and you had to sift it, and you had to add some tea and some sugar in it, and so then the bacteria would grow, and the older it was, the more sour it was. And uh, you could share it. You could take like, one layer off and give it to someone else. And I remember someone would come over to our place and my grandmother would always say, would you like some? And she'd give some away and we would sometimes have two jars. And they went on for a long time. I remember we always had it in the morning. I remember going, oh, it's a bit more sour today or it's sweeter today. And, uh, and then suddenly it disappeared. And I was trying to remember when it happened, and I asked my grandma, I said, do you remember when it disappeared? She said, no, I have no recollection. Just for some reason, everyone just dropped it, and I don't know what happened. And now we also have this kombucha in, the, in stores, you know, it, it, and it was so funny. I went over to a friend's place in Georgia, and she said, do you know what this is? Do you know what they call it? You know, this new thing, you know, apparently it's a thing now. And I tried it, and I was like, oh, my God, yes, it's the thing I had as a kid. I had no idea it was fashionable again. When I think of Soviet food, one of the things I think of, obviously, is cabbage and, and um, <laughs> sauerkraut. Um, sure. But your attempt to make sauerkraut was a, a complete failure. It was. 
Yes. But that was following the recipe in the book? Yes. I mean, sauerkraut's easy. I make sauerkraut. You do? <laughs> well, um, I've never made it. I never had to make it because my grandmother's always made it. So I've never had to think about, ooh, how do I make that? I, or if I want it, I just call up my grandmother and say, can you please make me some sauerkraut? And she's happy. And I make my own because my grandmother is no longer with us and never did make it for me. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I've never had to do it. And, you know, I've witnessed old women talking about it. You know, they'll be like, oh, I use this ingredient. Do you add sugar? No, it's much better not to add sugar. And they're like all into it you know they love making it and they love the process but as a young person i've never really come across it like young people don't really make sauerkraut in russia for the most part because everyone's got a grandmother or a mother who does it so when i read the recipe i uh, my grandmother said i'll tell you the recipe when i started cooking it she said i'll tell you the recipe and i said no you can't tell me your recipe i'm supposed to follow the book's recipe so don't tell me your recipe she was like, okay, ha, 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 sort of, let's see how it turns out. And so I followed the recipe, but the book isn't, it doesn't go into enough detail. You know, it's not like modern recipes where they tell you everything and, you, you know, you get videos and photos and all of that. The book is sometimes really vague, you know, just says, oh, take a bunch of this and mix it with a bunch of that and then cook it till it's ready. And, you know, it's up to you to figure it out how you understand that. So I was trying to follow the book to the letter, and uh, I don't have the equipment, I don't have the jars, I don't have the, uh, what was, they wanted me to use um, a wooden, um, like a piece of wood, uh, and you know, I, I couldn't find any of that, so I just used whatever I had, and of course it didn't work, it just failed miserably, and my grandmother, I think she was quite delighted, she was like, okay, now do you want my recipe, and I said, yes. Okay, I do. But I've actually never made it properly. So I better do it now while she's still alive so she can make her comments. When I read your account of the sauerkraut, sour cabbage, um, it said put some rye flour in the bottom of the barrel or jar or whatever you're doing, mm. which is really interesting because rye really kicks off fermentation um, and makes it, makes it go much faster. So that... I mm -hmm. thought that was interesting. I might try that the next batch. Haven't seen anything about bread and that, uh, that black Russian bread. Does the book talk about bread or was this just assumed to be something everybody knew how to make? Well, to be honest, I don't think anyone made it. It was pretty much always store-bought. So I, I didn't come across a recipe for bread at all. My grandmother eats bread with everything. Like she jokes about having bread with pasta, which she does. She will always have bread. And whenever she comes over to my place and I cook for her, and say I've prepared meat and potatoes and something like that, and she'll say, can I have some bread as well? Because she, can't, she cannot have a single meal without bread. And so for her, bread is an absolute essential. Like she, If she doesn't have any bread at home or she's running low on bread, she runs to the shop and she buys enough you know, bread, like white and, and dark she has to have it. But as for making it, she's never made it, I'm pretty sure. I, I've never had her homemade bread. And I've never come across bread being made, to be honest. It sort of became a thing more recently with bread makers, you know, with these machines. 
So it's more of a, a, a recent trend that like you buy this machine or you make your own bread, but it's like a fancy thing that younger people make. That's really interesting that old Russians didn't make their own bread and young Russians do make their own bread because it's kind of the reverse of Europe, the reverse of America. Hmm. Mm. Interesting. But you know, another thing, sorry, another, key, another thing to keep in mind is the living conditions that my grandmother lived in. To make bread, you need room, you know, you need, you need time for the fermentation and you need the room and you need to bake it. So I guess it was just too hard. The communal kitchens, and you write about communal kitchens, and I have, I have read a little bit about this, but families would share one kitchen. How many families? How did that work? Well, um, my grandmother lived in the center until 1962. She lived in this um, apartment for about for 27 years. It was a house, two-story, that used to belong to a rich person before the revolution. And then it was split up into all sorts of different rooms. And, you know, they would use the dark room, storage room for somebody's bedroom. And it was all turned upside down. And the person who used to live there was just occupying like one tiny space, a corner. And um, I think there were about four families living on one floor, so one apartment. Um, and uh, yes, they would just have to take turns. They'd have to take turns to use say, the bathroom, and they'd have to take turns to use the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And lots of people ate in canteens, mm-hmm. uh, certainly lunches, but some people would have dinners there as well. Mm-hmm. Because you couldn't cook at home properly. I, I was speaking to my grandmother's friend recently. And um, her father was killed in the purges in 1952. He was killed. And she was sent away to a small town in uh, Kyrgyzstan. And when they came back, they didn't have anywhere to live because their apartment was taken away from them. And uh, a relative took them in. And that relative was sharing an eight square meter room with her daughter. And she took in my grandmother's friend with her mother. And now, obviously, that wasn't a very long-term solution. It didn't last for years, but uh, for a long time, they were sharing that tiny space, and lots of people were sharing just the smallest rooms. Um, yeah, sorry. It's it's odd hearing you talk about that and, and knowing about the food shortages as well, because you write about some of the food shortages and people lining up your grandmother in a long line for sausages and what have you. This, it, it, I find it odd that there seems to be almost a nostalgia for, for Soviet era food. And, and one of the reasons I imagine that everything you write is popular is a kind of nostalgia or what? I mean, how else do you explain it? That's a very good question. And I think this nostalgia is a, psychological thing to be honest I think it's just um, people reminisce about when they were young when they were carefree and they forget about the bad parts and nowadays you know you have to you can earn good money in Moscow but you need to make an effort you need to think for yourself you won't just be given a job after university you need to go out there and you need to study you need to learn how to be a better manager of your own time and of what you do and it's up to you how successful you become how happy you become 
And uh, maybe that scares some people because it's easier to be told what to do. And um, I agree with you that there's definitely this nostalgia for the Soviet times now. But my grandmother doesn't share it. Like My grandmother will go to the shop and hear from a 30-year-old cashier, oh, wasn't it better in the Soviet times? And my 87-year-old grandmother will say, well, no, it wasn't. You weren't there. I was. It certainly wasn't better. Tell me the story about the man who invented the Eskimo ice cream. So, um, so yeah, he was working at this factory, and he was um, Latvian, I think. Yeah. I, I don't know exactly what happened, but what my grandmother says is that it, it looked like somebody else wanted the glory of, of the invention. And it was during the times when if you wanted to get rid of someone, you could. And um, he just, he got arrested. And uh, so there's lots of, lots of very sad stories, unfortunately, about the Soviet times. But I, I really wanted to show as well that it wasn't all just sadness and uh, purges. No, I love the stories of my grandmother when she reminisces about being young and when they went to Moldova, when they went to the Caucasus and they went to this carbonated drinks factory where they'd be closing the lids and and they'd be allowed to have some, you know, just not close the lid and just have some and how they enjoyed the tomatoes, how they used the avoiska, you know, the shopping bag. That's the string bag? Yeah. Yeah, it's a the name of it is really interesting. It's called avoiska, and avois is a, a very Russian word. It means sort of chance. We say nadeyetsa na avois, so to to hope to rely upon chance, which of course you cannot do as a sensible person. But it's a very Russian thing. So if if you didn't plan, if you didn't prepare for something, you just hope that it might somehow work out magically. And Avoiska is, uh, is the shopping bag that you bring with you just in case you magically stumble upon some food. And that was the Russian, the Soviet word Avoiska. And to be honest, I never even thought about it because I'm so used to it until someone asked me the, the meaning of it. I was like, oh, Avoiska, Avoiska. Oh, that's clever. And um, I just, uh, I also wanted to say that um, there was a lot of amazing sense of humor I don't I don't I don't want to say happy lives but they still found a way to have fun and to be around people they love and uh, and uh, come up with these really funny things and you know and so clever I mean it's really amazing I mean I'm not sure how well they translate but like there's one for example where someone walks into a store and asks you don't happen to have fish here, do you? And they say, no, we don't have meat. The shop across the road doesn't have fish. That's still pretty funny. And I was talking to Anna Khajieva, whose book, based on her articles about cooking from the Book of Tasty and Healthy Food, and talking to her granny about it, will be published soon. I'll put links to some of Anna's articles and her website in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. And it's time to remind you again that if you leave a rating, preferably a good one at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows, it does, they say, help other people to find Eat This Podcast. Also, in these times of social distancing, I need human contact. 
drop me a line, jeremy at eatthispodcast.com or on the Twitters at eatpodcast. Till the next time, which may very well feature another helping of very different Russian food, I'll say goodbye, stay healthy, and thanks for listening.